This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is June the 8th, 2004, and uh, for most of you, <laughs> it's enough with the pomp and circumstance this week as uh, Ronald Reagan goes to his eternal rest and reward. Um, Reagan synthesized into a symbol uh, years and years ago. Like most presidents, um, we had this so-called Republican Revolution, Reaganomics. You've been listening to it now for days. I hope not. Yes, Reaganomics is about things trickling down, 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 as low as you can go. The 40th president of the United States aided and abetted the rise of corporate oligarchy, the corporate feudalism that reigns in the land today. I like that deregulation stuff. Here they come, damn near everything. I remember uh, when he broke the air traffic controller's strike, a chill went down my spine. This was the man who was the uh, head of the actors' union, you know, Screen Actors Guild. <laughs> so much for labor, a sock in the eye, boys. Uh, oh, last night I couldn't help but... Look at the telly for a minute, and uh, uh, it all came flooding back to me. Yes, a man may smile and smile and be a villain, as Shakespeare tells us. Uh, my first dose of Reagan, the politician, well, the heaviest dose, came in the 60s when he was governor of California. Uh, he thought that the permissive society had simply run amok. I mean, you know, those students of, oh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, appalling. He got tough with the students. It was no joke, folks. Um, I don't know. The other day I got uh, an article back from an editor which said that she was sick of the 60s, and I thought, it's funny, I've still got, <laughs> I've still got stuff in the, closets from the 60s, um, I guess, you know, for some of us, that era was never resolved. I was there. Lots of tear gas. You know those stories, most KPFA listeners. If you are a young person and you do not know the story, check it out. Go to the library. Find out what happened in the United States in the 60s and the 70s and finally in the 80s. Reagan affected always the role of rugged individualist. You know, he was the cowboy. <laughs> Urban cowboy. 
The guys seem to be living in a psycho-political fantasy world, kind of Howard Hawks' World War II movie. If you have cable television, check for a special on Howard Hawks' version of World War II. It is the image that, for most people, stays in the mind, not the real World War II, but the the Hollywood version, which, of course, was Ronnie's version Uh he got to the White House in 1980. I recall my oldest son was 20 years old that year. I had done my best to convince my child that, you know, history was serious, that money doesn't matter. But, of course, it's not a very practical ideology. Uh, I was confused when he majored in economics. Now I understand my younger son pointed out to me recently that uh, I was possibly naive in my younger days, that I was the victim of a liberal education, that the myth of progress had shaped my thought. Uh, <laughs> yes, he told me, you're the one who said Reagan could never be elected. Gosh, you know, that's true. I was one of those... I suppose elitists who could never have imagined such a thing. Uh, you know, it's the same thing that happened in uh, the 2000 election. I simply could not imagine that the American people uh, could do anything so irresponsible to put such a person in charge of the welfare of the world's most powerful nation. Helen Caldicott once said of Ronald Reagan that he was completely inappropriate as the President of the United States. She also said he was, quote, a sweet old man, unquote. I remember that sweet old man when Libya's leader, Omar Gaddafi, referred to him as an old man, you remember? Back in 1986, that remark struck at Reagan's manhood. Remember, uh, it's always about manhood, about that wimp factor. You remember George Bush, the elder, the first, George Herbert Bush, saying that he had kicked the Vietnam syndrome. I thought Vietnam was a war that killed millions, but uh, apparently it was about how these men felt about themselves. I call that syndrome the warrior wimp syndrome. Uh, yes, the fate of nations depends on the gonads of uh, Napoleon, what Alex the Macedonian madman, all those guys. Uh, hasn't changed all that much. I remember in 86, Reagan promptly bombed Gaddafi at home. An older man isn't about to take that kind of remark from a younger uh, alpha male. That hit was aimed at Gaddafi's family, a head of state, I will remind you. Uh, I remember Gaddafi's wife, Sophia, yes, was her name? A black gown with silver, silver moons, I remember. She looked like a character in a Greek tragedy, uh... She cursed Reagan and his family and descendants. An adopted daughter was killed in that raid, that hit. Um, I'll never forget 
a Reagan aide appearing on television saying, we didn't see any adoption papers. I kid you not, that's a quote I heard. Uh, I heard it said. Uh, I remember thinking at the time, imagine the reaction of these United States had a head of state dropped a bomb on, uh, what, Chelsea Clinton, the Bush girls, Amy Carter, the daughter of a head of state. Then Reagan was told that Gaddafi had escaped, had lived through this uh, attack, and he said, um, once again, quoted on television, heard him, Oh, has he surfaced yet? No more, Mr. Nice Guy. Um, it's interesting the point at which they don't feel it necessary to act the role of statesman. Um, that sweet old man continued living in his dream, in his uh, altered reality, his dissociative state. He was adored, of course, by his wife and supporters, always a hero in the eyes of others. Uh, Virginia Woolf used to say the role of woman is to reflect a man as ten times his size. Uh, and, of course, those of us who are children of alcoholics know all about that kind of neurosis, we're kind of a club. We create our own world. Uh, we make it real. Uh, some of us should never leave our fantasy worlds. We belong on stage. On stage, we're fairly harmless. Um, perhaps not uh, entirely, but we are at least uh, honest masks. In real life, we are always inadequate. Yes, the mask, we wear the mask. Who was that masked man? We believe whatever makes us feel good about ourselves. Our lives are devoted to, uh, what is it, this attention to our own psyche. Reality is much too difficult for uh, some of us. Reagan was an actor. His whole life, his whole life, he became the man that the people loved. Uh, he made men especially feel so good about themselves, and they've been feeling lousy, you know, all that feminism and stuff. Uh, <laughs> men, for some reason or another, felt him to be a father figure. That confused me. I uh, noticed that Reagan was always an indifferent parent. He left all that stuff to his wives. The gossips tell us that his first wife, Jane Wyman, found him to be a colossal bore. There are rumors she promised to keep her mouth shut when his political career took off. The late Claire Booth Luce, she of Time Life fame, you remember her, she was a playwright and a wit. She wrote of Reagan that he was just a healthy boy who loved to saw wood. Ah. Uh, <laughs> he could see quickly that the rich have more fun and maybe more wood. I remember Ronnie Reagan back in Laguna Beach. I was 16. We had summer stock company down there, and the Hollywood actors used to come down and uh, do a play, you know, a new play every week. We little apprentices from the high school. We'd set up the show and take the small parts. Reagan was this jock, this Irish jokester. We were very superior. We said he was more an athlete than an actor. 
I've got a picture of Ronald Reagan posing for an art class. He was a life model. There are two sculptors in white aprons looking clinically at Ronnie. Uh, <laughs> he's posing in a sort of loincloth with his arm outstretched. He was uh, an awesome, awesome piece of flesh, a thing of beauty. He's a boy forever. I suppose he might have gone on uh, to be a salesman of some sort like his dad, but for Nancy Davis, that adoring second wife. If you saw Judy Davis, the brilliant Australian actress, play the role of Nancy Reagan in the recent controversial drama about the Reagans, the one that aired on cable because the networks wouldn't run it, you might just get the idea that Nancy was the Svengali in that relationship that it was Nancy's ambitions which put Reagan on the road to the White House. Uh, Nancy, it seemed to me, regarded politics uh, the way a social climber might do. Um, she wasn't into that public servant role, yes. It was the rich who were always with her. Uh, her mother, Nancy's mother, had had to uh, sally forth and secure a second husband, a rich husband, when Nancy was only a child, and uh, apparently this imprinted Nancy's psyche, uh, the theme of husband as investment, as a one-time quality purchase, looms large in her story. Nancy put Ronnie ahead of all other considerations, certainly ahead of any, any child care. Um, you remember, she had this look... Uh, this incredible look of worship when Ronnie spoke in public. Time magazine referred to her as the gaze. Apparently, um, Nancy pretty much ignored their children's reactions to the couple's insular emotional attachment. Uh, she was pretty condescending about their books and their efforts to, uh, what would you call it, rebel. I remember... Uh, an interview on television in which Nancy said that she worried so about Ronnie's sleeping well. Uh, she was so anxious that he have a good night that she herself would just eat bananas at night rather than crackers uh, so she wouldn't wake him. She, of course, didn't sleep very well. Um, Nancy kept the heat turned up to 87 degrees uh, temperature. Adequate for a spider, you will remember, Ronnie called her mommy. Nancy's father, I guess her stepfather, right, helped convert Reagan to the Republican Party. Uh, Reagan was recruited, courted at times, by the rich Republicans. And they could see his appeal, you know. Um, it's interesting how they, they have an instinct for these these men. Nancy's father owned the movie theaters in five states, so she, of course, was quite welcome as a starlet in Hollywood in the 40s. Um, when Queen Elizabeth II came to visit during uh, her, her reign in the White House, Nancy took the Queen to the soundstage at 20th Century Fox, saying, Come and see my kingdom. I remember Nancy Reagan was quite offended when she was not invited to the wedding breakfast in London 
when Diana Spencer married the Prince of Wales, you remember. Nancy was invited, of course, to the wedding, but she had to eat with Maggie Thatcher. I think it was uh, food was served in the Bank of England, I think. She didn't seem to understand that she, um, as the wife of the President of the United States, was part of the political wing of things. Nancy apparently um, <laughs> had delusions of grandeur. Uh, you remember her royal red, that sort of thing. Uh, she had very little interest in the larger political picture, political issues. Uh, she certainly took an interest in uh, matters that concerned her and her husband's uh, role, their power. I remember... When she met with Raisa Gorbachev, it was quite a calamity, um, oil and water or something. Raisa Gorbachev was a serious scholar and politician. Together with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, she had struggled all her life with political problems. Um, she was a Ph.D. in international relations, that sort of thing, you know. Nancy didn't really get into that sort of thing. She was... Um, what do we call that? A personification of the feminine mystique. Um, I think of her, well, in a way, she reminds me of the Bush clan today. That loyalty, which is always to one's own interests, you know. Uh, the king thing. I wonder if you saw George Herbert Bush being interviewed on CNN just after the flack about the prisons in Iraq and... I thought, well, yes, of course, he would have to say something um, overreaching, but he and Barbara Bush just, they they sat in that sullen pose that reminds me of the hapless crime victims we see on television every night. They had these stricken expressions, sad and passive. Instead of uh, speaking as an ex-president, as a statesman concerned with the fate of the nation, the fate of the globe, George Herbert Bush said that, well, you know, he was supposed to, it was his job to support his son at this time, you know, to be family, that sort of thing. Um, it was a chilling moment. Um, a chill wind blows over my land, over my heart, over the world. I think of the Republican ideologues today demanding that the poor take what they call personal responsibility for their choices. Check out uh, O'Reilly on Fox. That's his favorite word, personal responsibility. <laughs> responsibility for their poverty, for their disenfranchisement. And this is what we hear from self-absorbed Republicans whose behavior at the top, those, um, what is it, those guys in the White House, they illustrate for young people just how shallow they really are. Uh, when confronted with their errors, their mistakes, they simply, well, you know, they just deny, deny, deny. That's the rule. Uh, they develop a siege mentality that's happening right now put up more walls of denial. They close down under criticism. Uh, strange to say, these people at the top, these are truly the lonely ones, the sad ones. Uh, 
is that the poet says pity the monsters. They have only themselves. And that's not much, you know. Well, of course, uh, they have their power. True statesmen, what we call great men, authentic leaders, great men and women, those are the ones who connect. You know, they empathize with the masses. I know it's a cliché. It's always been a cliché, but it's true. Liberty is about all of us. Uh, that kind of leader wants to take the world with him. Liberation is for the nation. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt had lots of personal pain, you know, but her empathy uh, gave her that grandeur that never fades. Uh, she knew that hubris and arrogance just leads to self-destruction. We all know this, but... Uh, I don't know what stops the development that is needed in, in uh, what people at the top, the ones that close down, become afraid, and the ones who keep expanding and reaching out to others. Think of the good Jimmy Carter working for the greater good of the many non-stop, always a true Christian. Hell, even Bill Clinton is a man of the people in spite of his compromises. Um, I hope to get my hands on his book. He's all over television this week. His book is called My Life from Knopf. And we will be looking into that in weeks to come. <laughs> Certainly, Hillary Rodham Clinton is a true servant of the people. An honest-to-God Democrat. She made it real. She made it happen. I think of Hillary and Ted, Ted Kennedy, holding the fort there in the Senate with a handful of other Democrats, most of them good black women or women. Those are the women in the uh, uh, House of Representatives, mostly. Uh, funny, the people who stand by the liberal causes. Uh, imagine a first lady pulling that one off. Curious why people don't seem to notice um, what a breakthrough that was. Progressives are under terrible threat these days. Uh, some of us date that threat from Reagan's election in 1980, that terrible lurch to the right. When the people, the citizens, are led astray, when they are persuaded to follow selfish leaders, it takes a while for them to wake up. Too many men identified with and loved Ronald Reagan, and I think it's because he gave them a kind of permission to be selfish too. You know what he symbolized. It sends out these signals. I remember an activist telling me with great sadness, he said, you know, before Reagan came to office, it was necessary to uh, kill dissidents in back rooms, he said, after Reagan took the oath, they were just thrown out of helicopters. Reagan symbolized that retro world where it's cool to be an SOB. That's a world that my father used to say could be summed up 
in the phrase. To hell with you, Jake. We got ours, you remember. Greed is good, all that stuff. <laughs> it's so interesting. Uh, I remember dear Jimmy Carter just before Reagan came to office. Uh, Carter had gotten rid of the Hail to the Chief song and, you know, he turned down the heat and put on the sweater and got rid of booze in the White House, you know, the sort of thing, uh, frugal and sane. And uh, the Reagans, they say, brought back royalty. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's so confusing. Uh, what is real, what is substance, and what is style? Glitter is good sometimes. The Kennedys were glittering, but they actually had sophistication and I think possibly uh, what's called good intentions. Uh, I try to imagine a utopia in which political candidates might just spend all their money, that campaign money they raise, on public works. Imagine a, a situation in which the politician who raises the most money for the public purse uh, gets to be president, the CEO of the USA. Let's get honest, you know. If we're running this country like a business, uh, on a corporate model, I suppose that would be the test. <laughs> Millions going uh, to schools, public schools, the arts, health care, housing, human needs. Uh, they say that the money spent this year has broken all previous records, and it's only June. Watching this TV spectacular, all these citizens weeping and paying homage to a dead president who is, um, after all, uh, well, he, he lived longer than any other president. He was 93. I think possibly he got his share of uh, his time on earth. It makes me wonder just how much more emotion, passion, uh, support, attention, how much we could rouse people if we had a liberal leader, a truly uh, wise man, speaking to the people from the heart, speaking honestly. Uh, and then, of course, there would be the big question, the question of whether or not we get the rulers we deserve. Uh, imagine how such a leader, such a liberal uh, a man or a woman, imagine how they would find a constituency. Have they got a constituency out there? Who would listen to such a one? Does wisdom win elections? <laughs> or is all the world a stage? Yes, and all <laughs> the men and women merely players? Yes. Ah, oh, it's all a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying not very much, at least not this week, this next week, I have an announcement here, I will be at the Berkeley Gray Panther office, an evening with moi, Jennifer Stone, says here on this announcement, KPFA's flagrant sage femme, oh goodness, goodness, oh dear, I will be weaving literature, myth, and the chaos of our time. With unpredictable one-liners, whimsical irony, unnerving truth, my goodness. It says here that I have been known to pin people to their chairs. Well, I'll bring the pins, 
And you'll bring yourself. It's the East Bay Gray Panthers presenting an evening with Jennifer Stone. And let me give you the phone number. It's the Gray Panthers. Just call them. It's uh, in the Five and Dime area, code 510, and the number is 548-9696. It's at 7.30, Wednesday, June 16th. Light supper served. Berkeley Gray Panther Office, 1403 Addison Street, Berkeley, 94709. That's behind the University Avenue Andronico's. And I will bring my books. I think I will try to do, oh, more prose and poetry and less politics, more wine, less truth. Light supper served, yes, June 16th, 7 p.m., Wednesday, Berkeley Gray Panther Office, 1403 Addison Street. Phone number to call is 548-9696. For further information, and don't miss the uh, Poetry Fest this weekend, folks, uh, at the Community Fair, Saturday's Poetry Festival and Community Fair, Julia Vinograd, Berkeley's Positive Public Nuisance, will get the Lifetime Achievement Award for Poetry. This has been Jennifer Stone. We'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Stop the shadows.